Good morning, my name is Lena Bating and I'm a member of the Board of Women here at MPC. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field, Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, 
The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I'm one of the assistant pastors, and a warm welcome to all of you and all of you joining us on the live stream. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. If you're just joining us, we are in the middle of a sermon series in the gospel according to David. Last week, James looked at the story of Mephibosheth showing uh, uh, David showing kindness to him. One of the things that I'm excited about today is that I don't have to say Mephibosheth over and over again. But be honest, as we read this passage on Mother's Day, what were you thinking? <laughs> you might be thinking, is this really the Mother's Day passage I was kind of hoping for? One of those sermons that says, mom is awesome, let's be nice to her kind of message. Or you might simply be thinking, I thought David was a man after God's own heart. Why is this story even in the Bible? Good questions, ones that we will deal with today and also over the course of the next three weeks, we'll spend uh, some time looking at really this pivotal turning point in the life of David and how grace continues to permeate uh, his very being. So before we go to the text Let's uh, pray once again. Dear Heavenly Father, for honest, this is so much more than we want to know about David. And it's even more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. So, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts that believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder how many of you have taken the Enneagram test recently. It's an ancient and famous model of human personality profiling around nine distinct types. It's very popular. Everyone's been talking about it. It's also controversial as well because the origins are unclear. Reintroduced in the West about 50 years ago by a Jesuit priest in Berkeley, California. But even if you haven't taken the Enneagram test, I'm willing to bet that you've taken some type of personality test on a work retreat or with a career counselor. Maybe it's the DISC, maybe it's the Myers-Briggs, maybe it's the Winslow test. And if you're like me, you don't like being put into a box, but you were probably impressed by the accuracy and the predictability of these tests. One of the reasons why we enjoy these tests is because it reveals one of our assumptions. Underneath our desire to take these tests reveals our assumption that we don't know ourselves very well. We don't know why we do the things that we do. 
And we often don't know why other people do the things that they do to us. And these tests are useful, but nothing is a better tool than Scripture itself. And so we want to look at this text today and to learn two points. We want to learn the truth about our nature, and we also want to learn the truth about the nature of our Lord. So let's first look at the truth about David's nature. Well, at this point in the story, David has been very successful. And that is the setting of David's rebellion. Up until this point in the story, time and time again, all the things that the Lord brings to David's hands, he's relatively successful at all of these things. Things, you could say, are going really well for David. And then we read in verse 1 that the rainy season is now over, spring is upon us, and that means it's time to go to war. And so we see that in in verse 1, David sends Joab out to fight, but we're also told a key point in this text that David remained at Jerusalem. Now you probably are very familiar with this text and you know that this is not how it's supposed to work in those days. The king should not sit this one out. He should be on the front lines leading his troops. But David's now about 50 years old. He's been ruling and reigning as king for about 20 years. And perhaps David feels like, you know what? I've earned a little time off. I've done my fair share of fighting Remember Goliath? I've done my time. I've paid my dues. I'm going to take a siesta on the couch and let Joab go out and fight. Now, this struck me this week as I was reflecting on it because isn't it true that we often spend so much time fearing failure almost obsessively and at the same time we can underestimate the danger posed by success? Think about this, a quick reflection on kids and Christmas morning. Kids, it's safe to say that Christmas morning is probably one of your most successful days in the year. You wake up in the morning and you receive all kinds of toys and presents. Now you would think with all of this success on Christmas morning, these mornings would be the happiest of times. They would be blissful conflict-free times of the year, surely none of you kids have ever gotten more toys than you can play with and yet still refuse to let your brother or sister play with one of them on Christmas morning. You see, in our success, we are often tempted to think we have arrived solely by our own efforts. There is a danger of success that it will make us self-reliant and it will fuel our pride And the greatest danger of success is that we might forget God. And that's revealed by our prayerlessness. Friends, I'm not suggesting that you avoid success or even loathe success. But I am pleading with you not to be naive about the threat it poses. That we need grace not only in the dark nights of the soul, but we also need God's grace even on sunny days. We see the setting of David's rebellion is success. But as we also learn about David's nature, we see the seed of David's rebellion. The beginning of David's descent starts with a simple question in verse 3. 
And David sent and inquired about the woman. As I read that text, I wanted to yell at David. David, why are you even asking that question? The answer is, not your wife. The answer is, it doesn't matter because you're supposed to be out leading God's people in battle. No doubt, this passage is full of grotesque rebellion. But please, don't miss the seed. Don't miss how small it starts. Sin, even in its smallest form, is not to be trifled with. Now let's take this off the rooftops and Israel and put it in Fairfax in 2018. Here's one way we see this today. This foolish flirting with sin searches on Facebook. I mean, I'm just going to see if I can find her on here. What's the harm? I mean, it would be nice to reconnect. I'm just going to send this friend request. There's a book that came out just a few months ago by James Sexton. He is a divorce attorney. The name of his book is, If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late, A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together. This is what he writes. If I had a dollar for every divorce caused by infidelity that started on Facebook, I would have, well, just about the same amount of money I have. (laughs) Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) I don't keep detailed statistics on these things, but if I had to estimate, I would say I get two or three new cases per week that feature infidelity that started or is made easier to perpetuate by Facebook. Who knew one platform could cause so much chaos. Who knew that toying around with sin could bring so much destruction? Who knew that by David asking one simple question would lead him down this road of murder? Friends, this morning, what sin are you trifling with? What's the simple thought, the workplace relationship the little expense account liberties, as we will see, the small deeds of sin grow in ways that end up destroying relationships and ending lives. Friends, notice the seed of David's rebellion starts small. But as we learn about the nature of David, we also see the scope of David's rebellion. If you see the title there, it says David and Uriah, but this passage encompasses a number of relationships affected by David's sin, not just by by Bathsheba. She's actually only mentioned one time in this passage, but his sin also affects Uriah and Joab. Look at Bathsheba in verses 2 through 5. In verse 2, the writer uses intentional restraint in describing the sordid scene with rapid verbs saying, David saw, he sent, he took, he lay, Notice here the quick actions by David, but don't pass over the abuse of his power that in this moment he covets, he steals, he commits adultery. Some husband. His sin impacted Bathsheba. But also see how it impacted Uriah in verses 6 through 
13. In verse 3, we're told something interesting there. It's sort of unusual in the old text to name who your father is and also your husband. But we're told that she is the daughter of Eliam and also the wife of Uriah. Why does the text do this? Well, if you read a lot more of 2 Samuel, you'd realize that Uriah and Eliam are both two of David's mighty men. You remember the mighty men? They're the ones who stuck by David through thick and thin, risking their lives to save his over and over again. These were some of his best friends. But we read the story and he calls one of his best friends, Uriah, back from battle. He hides his sin from him and he tries to cover it up by sending him home twice. But Uriah the Hittite refuses to cooperate. And notice here, David abuses his power by lying to his friend, getting him drunk, and trying to get him to make some bad decisions to cover up his own bad decisions. Some friend David was. But his sin doesn't just affect Bathsheba and Uriah, it also affects Joab. In verses 14 through 25, As David plays one final card and executes his plan, he makes Joab an accomplice in murder. Did you notice that David writes this cold-blooded letter that Uriah even carries, instructing Joab to make sure Uriah dies in battle? And notice we're also told that Uriah wasn't the only one who died, but David murdered many of his soldiers That day, he abused his power by commanding Joab to murder and cover for him some king. In this story alone, King David coveted, stole, committed adultery, lied, and murdered. In my Bible, that's five of the Ten Commandments there. It's hard to believe when we read this story that this is the same giant slayer that this is the one who was a friend to Jonathan, that this was the one who was a loyal subject to Saul, that this is the one who welcomed Mephibosheth to his table and then put Uriah in his grave, that this is the writer of the Psalms, that this is the one who is described as a man after God's own heart. Friends, David learned something about his nature in this story, that he too was a rebellious sinner. If you were here a few weeks ago, maybe you remember the illustration that James gave about Oscar Wilde's only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And James asked, if there were a portrait of my soul, what would it look like? Well, chapter 11 slows down the pace of the story of David, and it gives the reader a portrait of David's soul. And we see that the seeds of all the most despicable sins were present even in the devout heart of David. Friends, do you know what this means for the portrait of our own souls today? It means this, that the seeds of all the most despicable sins are in our hearts too, just like David. I wonder if you believe that, or I wonder if you believe that you're better than David. 
For me in my life, I think David knew the Lord better than me, and he still committed these atrocities. Friends, we need to beware of the setting, the seed, and the scope of every sin that dwells within us all. Again, the message of this story is not, don't be like David, because the truth is, we already are. This story teaches us that all of our hearts are broken and corrupt, depraved in our nature. And Christianity offers one of the most reasonable answers about what is wrong with the human condition. Friends, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are today. (laughs) And you are surrounded by people just as bad as you are. Maybe you haven't been in church in a long time. Maybe you're thinking that you wouldn't fit in here. But friends, we are not a perfect people. But we are perfectly loved, as we'll see in this text. So don't worry. If I stopped right here, you might say, Hey, pastor, this sermon's not very encouraging. (laughs) But until you get the first point about David's condition and our condition, we will not be moved by the second point. You know, it's amazing throughout Scripture too. Throughout the rest of the Bible, the Lord always brings up David's rebellion against him time and time again. Remember the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1? Do you know how David is listed there? David, the king, and also the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Even there, God is pressing into David's sin reminding him of his condition, reminding us of our condition so that we might be ready and willing to understand and to receive grace. Because, friends, we don't just learn about our nature in this passage, but we also learn about the Lord's nature. The story is not just about David and Bathsheba It's not just about David and Uriah. It's not just about David and Joab. But this story is about a relationship between David and the Lord. Now, the Lord is not mentioned in this story until the last verse of this chapter in verse 27. And what are we told there? It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's the first time that God appears in this chapter. It's not until the very end, but it's very important. One commentator on this passage, Ralph Davis, says, The silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. He may be silent, but he is not sightless. And his silence, up to verse 27, only highlights his statement. And you see how it contrasts with what David tells Joab. David tells Joab, hey, don't be troubled. It's not that big a deal. Just brush it off. But that's not what the Lord says to David. He says, this is not a casual act. These are grotesque acts, and this is not okay. Friends, we must be unwaveringly clear that any kind of abuse is never acceptable and must never be covered up because these things violate the very nature of the Lord. Verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But again, that's not where the story ends. 
In chapter 12, verse 1, we see the Lord mentioned again. And this time we read, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. The next time that God appears in this story, do you see he is pursuing David by sending Nathan the prophet? Even when David is not seeking God, God is seeking him. The nature of God's grace is that even when David is running his hell-bound race, God is in pursuit of him. There's one verb that's mentioned 12 times in 1 Samuel chapter 11. That verb is sent. Over and over you see David sent Joab and he stayed at Jerusalem. David sent for Bathsheba. We see all the sending that David does is sinful. And now we see that contrasted with the sending that God does is gracious. You see this story is framed by the verb sent. And without David being sent, Nathan, this would be a bleak story. David sent messengers to do his dirty work, but the Lord sent messengers to do his good work. Ralph Davis again says, we need to dally on those opening words, for they speak of the vigilance of grace. They show that grace pursues and exposes the sinner in his Sins. Friends, listen and believe the truth about the Lord's nature. It's the story of the Bible. We are all rebellious sinners, and God sends grace to failures. That's the story of the Bible. Let me be clear about that this morning. If you're asleep, wake up and hear this one point. The message of the Bible is not, hey, you can live a good life and you can please God. But the message of the Bible is you can't live a good life and only Jesus has pleased God and you can only please God by faith in Jesus Christ. The message of the Bible is that we're all failures. We're worse than we even think we are. Adam and Eve... They rebelled against God with treason, and what did God do? He sent them a promise. God gives grace to Abraham. He had unbelief in the face of God, and God still comes with provision. David, look at his rebellion against God, and God sends him a prophet to speak grace and truth. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the message of the Bible, that the ultimate prophet, Jesus comes in to deal with David's sins and ours. And this prophet Jesus, this king, doesn't come and murder and take life and then try to cover up transgressions. But this king lived a sinless life as a sacrifice so that the transgression of others might be forgiven. Friends, David learned the truth about the Lord. The message of the Bible is this. He sends grace to failures like me. He sends grace to failures like you. Friends, today, don't think too low of Jesus. Because cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you think you are. But cheer up. He's a better Savior than you think he is. God didn't give up on David. And he won't give up on you. Grace is greater than all our sin. 
Friends, people struggle with Christianity because, one, they think they're not that bad and they don't need a Savior. Or, two, some of you know you're that bad and you think grace can't be that simple and this story can't be that good. Friends, why is this story in the Bible? It tells us two things. One, you can trust the Bible. The Bible is factual. Think about it. If you were making up a religion, who would include this story about one of your founders? It's in there because it's true. You can trust the Bible. But the second reason why it's in there is this. It's reality. There's no, there are no heroes in the Bible but one, and his name is Jesus. And so what we read throughout the pages of Scripture is failure after failure and grace after grace. Friends, that's what we're faced with today. Maybe some of you need to receive that grace for the first time. Maybe some of you are in the place of David after having committed some of these sins and you need to repent and come to faith in Christ. And maybe some of you are just trifling with sin and you need to be more vigilant about it in your life. Friends, more than any Enneagram, we need scripture to open our eyes to our true nature and the nature of our true king. You see, David was a great king, but he wasn't the king he was supposed to be or the king that we need. And you might be a great person, but none of us are the people that we're supposed to be. Acknowledge that you're a broken sinner, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God that we love. We need a true and a greater king. And friends, in Jesus Christ, we have one. Acknowledge that you are broken, but that you belong to him and his church. And go to war against your sin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is true that uh, these texts are not comfortable to preach. They're not comfortable to hear. But Father, there is a beautiful thread and a great message in this text that we don't need an example to follow, but that we are in need of a Savior to rescue us. Hallelujah that we have one today. And so, Father, help us. Help us to see our nature and to see your glorious grace so that we might be transformed today and forever and for all of eternity. In his name we pray. Amen.